So this morning we are completing a five-week teaching series that has launched us into 2024. It's entitled, How We Change. And in this series, we've been spending time in one book of the Bible, in Acts chapter 9. And I hope that as this has been a way for us to start a new year, that through the journey we've taken, you have a growing sense of hope, what we might call hopeful expectation, terminology we've used around here, of what this new year can bring because of the incredible change that takes place in this chapter. We see that people can change. What happens to Saul is she's going to change him forever, and then he will, through that change, change this world. You see that relationships that are broken are healed. We see that churches can change. We see that cities can begin to change. All of this takes place in this chapter. And I do hope that you are thinking and praying and leaning towards what 2024 in your life, what God wants to do with a sense of wonder and possibility because you can change. Relationships that are broken can be mended. Grace can abound in new ways in our life. This divided nation can change. Our world can change. But it doesn't just magically happen. And that we need to posture ourselves, as we've been talking about, how to lean towards all that life can be and to soak it up. Now today, as we bring this five-week journey to a close, we're not so much going to be talking anymore about how we change, so much as we're going to be talking about how change can be sustained. Because often when we change, it's like we change for a little while and then we default back. We change and then we default back. But change can last. And then as we are changed, we can then change again and build on that change in new ways. And so we're going to be talking today about how change can last in our lives, that we don't just default back eventually to the way things were before. So the verses we're going to be looking at are verses 26 through 30 from Acts 9. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. When he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. When the brothers and sisters learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this morning, no matter who we are, how we gather and worship, what hopes, what dreams, what doubts, whatever we bring in here today, Lord, that you would meet us individually, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we think about Saul's experience in Acts 9, these four verses are verses that we don't really spend much time on. We focus on what takes place on the road to Damascus. We focus on often what takes place in Damascus. But these verses are really often just sort of summed up as Saul sort of leaves the scene for a little while. 
But there's a lot that takes place here. First off, we have to remember why he's arriving in Jerusalem in the first place. He arrives there from Damascus because in coming to faith and getting baptized, he goes and preaches his first sermons uh, in Damascus. And the response as a preacher is not what you ever want. In his first sermons, the response of the crowd is that they try to kill him. And so he is, has to escape from Damascus by being lowered by some of his disciples in a basket at night over the walls of Damascus so that he can escape with his life. He returns to Jerusalem, right? But what we see here is that when he shows up, he appears before the disciples, uh, the Christians in Jerusalem. They don't think that he's uh, a real Christian because the last they knew, he was killing people. It's a theme that's been picked up in this, uh, in this chapter. And so they don't believe him, but then Barnabas stands up, and Barnabas says, no, 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 he's had this experience on the road to Damascus, and I saw what happened in Damascus, and he preached a sermon, and people wanted to kill him. And so they said, okay, well, so God can change a life. And he goes out and he preaches a second time, and people want to kill him as he preaches a second time. And so then the brothers and sisters, it says, the Christians in Jerusalem, they see the threat that is to his life, and they send him away. They send him first to Caesarea, and then they send him north to Tarsus. And Tarsus is the town in modern-day Turkey where he grew up. He goes back to his hometown. And he disappears then from the scene for the rest of chapter 9, for chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12 of Acts. No mention of him until Saul shows back up in Acts chapter 13, and he's different in some ways. First off, he now goes by Paul instead of Saul, the name that many of us as Christians are more familiar with him. And his ministry begins to develop and, and change in some ways because not every sermon results in people wanting to kill him. I think if we just look at this section as how Saul disappears from the scene for a while, we're going to miss some stuff that's really important, though, about change. And again, as I said before, we're going to be looking today at how change, which we've been talking about now for the last four weeks, how change can last and be sustained. And there's some really important stuff here that we need to pay attention to. And I do want you to know that, that, that today there's going to be two points we talk about. This is a two-point sermon. I can't stand uh, more than one point in a sermon. Uh, the way we're taught classically in seminary is that you're supposed to have three points. If you're really good, they all start with the same letter and a really clever alliteration. Um, I, uh, I, I don't believe in, I'm not, I don't not believe, I'm not a three-point sermon preacher. I don't pretend in a month you're going to remember three things that I said. My hope is you might remember one a month from now. So I just usually preach one-point sermons. Today, though, there's two. And I couldn't, we can't whittle it down. We're going to talk about them both. Two things that I want you to take away. Uh, and the two things that we're going to be talking about are going to be this interweaving. And I want you to know this from the beginning of both Acts 9, and we're going to be weaving that in with some doctoral work that uh, an Anglican bishop named Brian Wallace did in his doctoral research on human flourishing. And we're going to be going back and forth between a couple of points that's in Brian's research of flourishing. And if you've been here for a while, you'll know any study on how human beings come alive and come more fully alive, I want to expose myself to that. And Brian's research is really interesting. Brian might be a name some of you know. He's a friend of mine. He's a friend of this congregation. Uh, before becoming a bishop, Brian was on staff at Fuller Seminary, and he was the one that designed the formation cohorts, if you've been through those cohorts. Uh, Brian designed those, um, and they are amazing. We're going to have a new one that's going to be signed. Sign-ups are going to happen right after Easter. Um, it's, it's one of the most powerful things. But Brian's research for his doctorate on human flourishing was really interesting. 
And what he did in his research was he looked at uh, and went and asked people he knew and respected, how do people flourish? Like, and, and who do you know that's flourished? If someone came and asked you that, who do you know that's fully alive? Who do you know that just seems alive in their spirit? They're connected with other people. They're living in their work that is making a difference in this world. Who do you know? And then he took the names of people that others pointed to and said that they seemed to be flourishing and they were in countries around the world. And he interviewed them and talked about their patterns of living and talked about where their common themes that arose in this. And two of the main points that he found over and over and over again are in countries around the world of people who were flourishing are literally laid upon what happens in Saul in these verses. And so we're going to end by talking about them both, not just for Saul, but ultimately how you and I can incorporate these patterns in our life so that change doesn't happen in fits and starts and next year I'm going to really try harder and next year I'm going to really mean I'm going to be different. But that we can see the change that lasts. Now the two things, the first one we're going to bring up here uh, that, that you see here in these verses is what Brian refers to in his research as people who are flourishing where it changes have what he calls a guided life. They're not lone rangers. They're not people who are sitting there going, you know, it's my life and I'm going to live it the way I want and I can make my own decisions and I'll define what truth is for me and I'll kind of do this stuff. That people who do that, he found over time, are people who are uh, not flourishing over the long haul. But that people who are flourishing over the long haul have people, usually multiple people in their life, who have both access, his research shows, to their lives, but also some authority in their life. We see this with Saul here. Saul goes back to Tarsus, not because he's a leader and he has this vision of what he's supposed to do next. We talked about last week how Saul is just this natural leader, both before and after his conversion to Christianity. But this natural leader doesn't have a vision for Tarsus. And notice that when the disciples send him there, they don't send him there to plant churches or they're like, hey, why don't you go write the letter to the Galatians? We just think that it's probably time that you're the one to go do that. They just dismiss him because his life's being threatened. They dismiss him to, to Tarsus. But what I want us to pay attention to in Saul in this is that Saul listens. He doesn't say, they go, you're not going to tell me what to do. Do you know who I am? God's called me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm going to write Romans. Who are you to tell me what I'm going to do? But he listens to them. It's so important for us to think about what it means to have guides in our life, people with access and authority. Brian's research shows that, uh, that, that these can be a variety of people. It might change over time. It might be people in a small group. It might be people who are mentoring you. It might be a coach. It might be a therapist. It might be a counselor. It might be um, uh, a teacher. It might be your parents. But that all of us have people who, when we're flourishing, who have folks who have access to our life and some authority in the decisions we're making. That's why we have in our new members class that's starting today opportunities for people to get to know other people in community, not just learn and download information about what it means to be a member of covenant. That's why the biggest part of our spring guide is about how you can get involved with Bible studies and small groups so that your life can begin intersecting to have these sort of conversations. You cannot do this by yourself. You're not meant to. You're not designed to. I had a raising conversation with someone in our church who was talking to me at a Bible study that they had been going to for a while and, and that they had started connecting with this other person in the Bible study. And they said, I think I got my first spiritual mentor of my life. That's amazing. Someone who has access and some authority that we can go to in the decisions we're making. Who is that for you? 
I have thought about this a lot, and I really feel led to share this uh, with you guys. Uh, in my own life, in the last year, this has been probably the most important area that I have had to learn that I was lacking myself. And, um, and, and not that I don't have community, that I don't have friends, that I don't have people who are guiding my steps, but where I noticed in my life that for the first time ever for me, that I was missing it, were among other people who were in jobs like my own. Tra being a pastor is weird. It's a very theological way of looking at it. It's a weird, weird job. And it's a great job. It's an amazing job, but like anything, it can, it, it, you know, it's weird. <laughs> and my whole life, I've been blessed by people who have come to me and pursued me, and I didn't even realize how important that was. I mentioned last week in seminary, Daryl Guter. I mentioned, uh, if you've been here for a while, you know that when I arrived here, a name Steve Hayner, you heard me mention a lot. Steve was just this amazing, um, important mentor, friend, guide for me in ministry. I mentioned uh, in the fall the name Brian Dunnigan, who was a friend of mine from Atlanta, and then we moved out here and discerned calls to Texas together. But Steve has passed away, and Brian's passed away, and, and, and these kind of people in my life that I realized for the first time in 20 years, like, I don't really have this. People that I would say are guiding my steps. And so I was talking to Beth about it uh, this summer, and I said, man, I'm really realizing this for the first, I feel isolated. Uh, in this, in terms of my, my, my role as a senior pastor, my, my position, I've never felt this way before. And she was like, well, you can do something about that. You can go talk to other people. I'm like, yeah, but I like it when they come to me. <laughs> and she said, true, and your whole life, that's what's happened, and it's an amazing gift, but maybe you need to go out and seek it. And so I called a couple of pastors that I know who I really admire of different denominations in different parts of the country. And it was weird because you're like, would you like to start talking maybe? And everyone who I asked, I mean, it's humbling. Seriously, it's humbling when you do that. And every one of them was like, yes. And so then there was an organization that works on pastoral renewal. And I contacted them. I'm like, if some of us got together, you give funding to this. Could we apply to some of them? They're like, yeah, you can apply. And we did. And they're like, yeah, here's some funding if you want to get together. And so then I had some referrals. And I called some other people. And every single person that we asked, some of whom I didn't even really know, around the country said yes. And this past week, we gathered for two days for the first time in New Orleans. And it was, it was life-giving. It was like drinking water after walking through a desert for a really long time. These, we talked about leadership, we talked about church in an election year, we talked about our families, we talked about our prayer lives, we talked about um, you know, things that we should know, and, and it was real, and it was powerful. And we're going to be meeting again for the next, it's a two-year commitment that we made. I feel stretched, I feel like people were speaking into my life as a pastor, and it was really good that, to be thinking differently than I was before. Does that make sense? These are people that, that I had to go look for and seek out in the other place. To be completely transparent with you all, in the last year that I have been doing is I've been seeing a counselor. Which is not something I'd really done regularly as an adult before. I had actually kind of resisted it as something I didn't need. And the only times that I had seen a counselor was when a crisis had happened. And then I would meet with them for a little while and then stop, which is fine. But in the last year, and there's no crisis that's happened. 
I kind of wanted to start really paying attention to how I'm wired and uh, how God made me and where my faith interacts with this and why I react sometimes the way I do and how I can learn and grow and be intentional to become the husband, father, individual that God wants me to be. And it's been challenging and it's been hard at times. And this is someone who has some authority in my life to kind of maybe help me think through steps that I need to be uh, more intentional about. And while it's not always been easy, it's always been really important and really good. But in both of these things, I had to go looking for it. These things don't fall into our lap. But a guided life is what Saul is doing here. Who has access and some authority in your life to help you discern the way forward? You can look for this if you choose to. That's number one. Second thing that's here that Brian's research shows, we'll pull up, is what he calls a process of regular retreats. Regular retreats where we pull back and we uh, kind of decompress from the situation, the world around us in this crazy, busy, always plugged in world that we're in. And we pay attention to the voice of God, practice of solitude we've talked about before. Brian found that over and over again, that people who were flourishing built into their calendars, getting away. You see, Saul doesn't disappear and just nothing happens. There is something in him being gone that when he shows back up, God has been working on him in the being away, in not leading any movement at that particular moment. Does that make sense? Saul in this passage, and this is a bit of a jump, but I want you to stick with me. Saul is not ready to write Romans yet. Like seriously. But when he shows back up in Acts chapter 13, there's this different, I mean, he's still Saul, but there's this sense in him uh, of how he's communicating and what he's doing that is more effective than just preach a sermon, die, preach a sermon, die, preach a sermon, die. God works in him by him, by the absence of him serving in these roles for a minute. God changes him. And Brian found people over and over again who regularly retreat can sustain change, and that change can lead to flourishing. Now, what does that mean? Because that can sound fuzzy, so regularly retreating. The good news, we had a PhD uh, doctorate person who did research on this. So we're going to bring up some slides up here of what Brian's research, and maybe is happening here in Acts 9, of what regular retreating should look like for you and me. There's seven points. They're all going to be on one slide at the end. And so if you want to take a picture or write them down or we'll post them somewhere, um, uh, to see, but these are really practical ways of what retreating can look like. Here's the first thing that he says. How often do I need to retreat? How often should I build this into my calendar? Well, what his research found was people needed half a day at least once a quarter. Now, let's break that down for a minute. So what does that mean? He said some people retreated as much as once a month, right? But he said that what was seemed to be the minimum was four times a year. Once every quarter, there was this intentional time that people built into their lives for reflection and retreating. And that, that, that the amount of time, you don't have to go for a week, although that can be nice, but that it was half a day that they built in. And they knew it was coming and you did not schedule over it. I know we're busy, but every one of us can do that. Number two. You have to turn off all technology. For you to go away and watch a baseball game doesn't count. For you to go away and watch YouTube videos uh, and cat videos for a while doesn't count. For you to go away and look at Instagram and see the amazing vacation your neighbor took and then feel jealous about it, that does not count for what this is. We have these devices that are amazing in our life, but they are also can strangle us. 
and you've got to put it down and turn it off and put it away and not be on call for a little bit. You've got to be present. Number three, he says to pay attention to the setting that you're in. Get in a setting that connects you with God. It might be a room in your house uh, that you prepare. It might be somewhere outside. You might go for a walk in the Greenbelt. You might drive out to the hill country for a couple of hours and, and, and walk outside. You might come here to Covenant. Maybe you use the prayer labyrinth and then come in here to the sanctuary and pray. But he said, pay attention. Your setting should be somewhere that feels a bit set apart from just normal training. It not, might not be while your family's around at the kitchen table. So pay attention to your setting. Number four, he says to bring a Bible with you, which is, that's a good thing. You should bring a Bible with you, right? But you should let the word of God kind of inform how you enter into this time. He said, if you're not certain what to read, he said, maybe read the Psalms or even the, begin the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Let God's word just sort of wash over us. And we can be remarkably unpresbyterian about this. It's like, well, how many Psalms? And like, when do I, do I read them out loud or something? Do what you want to do. But just let the Bible be a part of it. Well, you know, I, I like Proverbs more than Read Proverbs. But let God's word guide you. Just spend, have some freedom. Two psalms, three times. Decide in the moment. There's freedom in that time. What else should you bring? Number five, he says bring a journal or a notebook uh, to record your thoughts and feelings. Because, you know, like four days later when life gets busy and you're like, I think God, I think I was praying about that or thinking, you want to write down just thoughts. You know, maybe you write prayers out. Maybe you have sort of intuitions as you're doing it. You want to write this stuff out uh, as you go. And the last two points are kind of the large picture sort of theological questions he, he talks about to think about while you're there. So number six, he says, on the one hand, and this is some of what we did in the exam at the beginning of the, of the year, Lord, where do I sense your joy and how do I lean in that direction? Where do I sense your joy in my life? Where am I kind of coming alive? Where are my relationships really bringing great fruit into my life? Lord, what aspects of my day, what uh, kind of sense of connection in this city, what activities do I do that I look forward to, that I'm stirred up when I do it? And how is it that I can lean more into that place where you are? And last, the sort of flip side of that, and this is the last point. He says, where do I feel burdened? And what do you want to change? Where are the places in my life that don't feel life-giving, that feel painful, that feel scary, that feel hard, that feel rough? And what is it in those places that are, can be draining for us or that give us a burden for the things of this world? What might God want to change about that? Maybe God wants to change you in that. You want to rethink some patterns of how you do things. Maybe it's that you need to rethink where you're involved. Maybe, as we talked about last week, it's time to put something down because you're carrying too much. But where do you have that lack of a sense of peace? And how does God want to change that? To, 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 here's the thing, when you look at these points, and this is just like the first one, the guided life. I want you to listen. You can do this. You do not need a PhD in theology to be able to go do You do not need to be a published author like Alan Hilton to be able to do this. You do not need to be, I'm being serious, you do not need to be able to translate Greek and Hebrew to be able to do this. You and I can do this. We can do this. The question is, do we choose to or not? But what this text is saying is that something happens in Saul when he goes back to Tarsus, that God works on him because he's not in the grind all the time. 
and that he's different when he emerges from that because he listens and has a sense of how the disciples can guide him in making decisions. He's giving them access and authority to the things he's thinking about. And what Brian's research, without ever mentioning Acts 9, lines up with these verses. This is not just Saul being dismissed to Tarsus. These are important rhythms of how a life is changed. The reason we did this series to start the year is because while there's always anticipation and excitement in a new year often for people, 2024 is not a year that a lot of people had circled on their calendar. It's like, God, I can't wait for that. Oh, the last two presidential election seasons have just been so life-giving. So life-giving for us, so life-giving for our nation. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for the advertisements on TV. I cannot wait for the fear-monging to tell me if someone's elected, it will be the end of creation as we know it. I cannot wait for more anxiety and more division. I cannot wait. For two candidates who seem to be running that the majority of Americans don't want to run. There's worry as we go into a new year. And that's on top of what you might feel in your life. Because we're all dealing with stuff. Of what we'd like to see different in this new year than the year past. That's on top of relationships that are estranged of families that are divided, of people who we miss, of loved ones who are struggling. It is easy as we move into this year to feel cynical, to spread fear, to believe that polarization is the only way that things can be. It's easy to believe that we can't change and that the places that feel dead in our lives, places of pain in our lives can't change. I want you to hear today that they can. We are about to take communion and to sing one of the most glorious, and if you come to my communion station, I'm going to be crying when we sing today, and I hope you sing today. Because we're going to be singing about a God who raises up the dead. We bring ourselves to a God who changes death. If God can change death, God can change you. If God can change death, God can change a nation. If God can change death, God can change brokenness and hurt and pain. And so we don't need to be naive or Pollyanna-ish about what this time might look like. But I want you to hear that as we lean, not by making belief that we can be the change ourselves, but if we lean towards the one who is change, who is transformation, who is life, that you and I can change. And that change can last. That we should have a sense of hopeful expectation about what 2024 can be for us all and for this world, no matter what is in the headlines right now. 
Because if we walk in the ways we've been talking about with following the one who is change, that is how we change. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for your leading, for your guiding, for what it means to be your people. Help us all, no matter what's going on in our lives and in our world, to look forward with a sense of what you can do and how we can be a part of it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who changes everything. Amen.